Psalm 37, verses 39 and 40. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. And the Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. Father, we are so thankful that you offer refuge to each of us. That as we feel the pressure of this world, not only physically, but emotionally and spiritually, we are grateful that we have you to go to as a refuge in the time of trouble. That you will be our strength, you will be our help, you will be the one who will refresh us, you will anoint us and empower us for the work which is before us, because you have left us here to serve you, Lord. And I pray that we will find those avenues of service that you set before us each and every day. That through prayer we will seek this day for your direction as to how we might be used of you. And Father, as we study further the <clears throat> great devastating event in the life of David, we, ex we ask you to teach us how we might apply these truths, that how we might be able to pray for the church, which in so many ways is infused with the attitude David had during that year. And so, Father, we just pray that you will glorify yourself through our study of your word this day. In Christ's name, amen. We're in the 12th chapter of 2 Samuel. Now, last week we read the first six verses and began to look at those. I'd like to read them again today. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 to 6. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. And it would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling, this is the rich man, was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. As we noted last week, we're talking about a period of possibly up to a year that David has been living with this condition of sin in his life, and he has not been willing to go before the Lord or to confess it to anyone. And as a result, that deep and vital communion that David had known as, as a child of God for all the years, from the days when he sat out on the hillsides and watched his sheep, for his father's sheep, and, and began to sing the, the psalms, many of which we know as the psalms of David, been given by God the strength to kill a bear with his, with his own hands and to kill a lion. In all of those years, he had had this, this deep communion with God, and now suddenly that communion has been cut off. And there is no communion between God and David. And, and I mentioned last time that I'm, I'm certain that he shunned any kind of personal prayer and he shunned any kind of personal study of the Word of God, first of all, because the interest wouldn't be there because of the severance of, of communion, and second of all, 
because he was afraid that God might speak to him and that he might be convicted of sin. He didn't want that to be, to happen. I think that deep down inside, David knew that he was living in violation of God's, of his covenant with God. But he brushed away those thoughts. Any time his thought would start to gravitate in that way, he'd immediately, certainly clear his mind and say, oh no, no, move his mind off to something else. Rationalizing all that he had done as the prerogative of the king. I'm a king. As a king, I'm a cut above everybody else. The laws which apply to them do not apply to me. He couldn't admit that he had sinned and violated the law of God because like Humpty Dumpty, he knew that all the king's horses and all the king's men would not be able to repair the damage if he admitted to sin. And they had failed because he was, he was the godly king of Israel, the one to whom everyone looked up. And if he were to admit this heinous sin, it would be all over. It'd be disaster. He'd be wiped out, no longer able to serve as king. And so he simply denied everything, refusing to admit that he had done wrong. And, and he just carried on as usual. I'm the godly king of Israel, and he went through the perfunctory motions of, of quote, going to church, as we would put it today, uh, carrying on in the religious tradition of that time as if nothing was wrong. And last time uh, we, we ran out of time when I was just trying to bring this to, to an application for for us today in 21st century America, I think we find a similar spiritual plague rampant in the church in America. All kinds of sinful lifestyles are being carried on, and I listed many of them last time, and, and we, we are familiar with them. It sounds like one of the lists from Colossians or Ephesians or Galatians of, of the things that children of God are not supposed to be doing, but, it, but it's being practiced, and, and many are practicing these things and still claiming to be born-again Christians. And sanctimoniously rationalizing that if anybody tries to point the finger, they say, judge not that you be not judged. You know, taking that scripture completely out of context and, and applying that. And, and I've heard people literally do that. And, and so I ended last time with this question, how can this be? How can it be that in the church in America today and in the evangelical church in America today, Many of these sinful lifestyles are tolerated, practiced. Maybe people pretend like they're not really there, but they're there, and nobody seems to be convicted of what is happening. I, I think the answer is at least threefold. First of all, I think that in many cases there's lack of genuine faith. These are not really Christians we're talking about. I think another answer is that there's lack of inner conviction. It's one thing to become born again. It's another thing to study the Word, to know what it means to be a Christian and to desire to walk in the way that God has set before us. And thirdly, I, I think that it may be the result of the failure to put on the armor of God as it's described in Ephesians chapter 6. One of the passages of Scripture which I think will help us to uh, understand how all this can be is, is Jesus' parable of the sower. We didn't read it last time, but I, I did mention it. In the 13th chapter of Matthew, we'll, we'll read that particular version of it. Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 18. Uh, Jesus was sitting by the Sea of Galilee, and, and he was ministering to the people, the multitudes were told. And the disciples heard the parables that Jesus was teaching, and, 
he specifically was asked about the parable of the sower, and so beginning in verse 18, he explains the parable of the sower to his disciples. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. And the one on whom seed, wa seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one who, on whom seed was sown among thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one in whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit, brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. I, I think in some way we can find at least a partial answer to this plague of immorality that seems to be rampant in the church in America, and it's not just rampant in the mainline church, you know, the, the churches that at one time in the past were, were vital churches but now are dead, but it also is occurring even in the evangelical churches of America. It is certain that many of those Christians, and I put that in quotation marks, so-called Christians who are living in unrepentant immorality, are people whose hearts were hard and the seed of truth fell on that area and the truth was snatched away. And so they may have been in the church, they may be in the church, but the truth is finding no root in their hearts. Or those whose hearts were rocky and, and the truth quickly withered as the soil was shallow. Or those whose hearts were full of worldly thorns which have choked out the truth. And of course, this is a, a really uh, powerful thing that's occurring uh, throughout the Church of America today because th the truth of Scripture is being painted as if it were old time. You know, we, we sing the song, we used to at least, old time religion, give me that old time religion. And now the emphasis, of course, is on the old time. You know, it's the old time religion. The new religion is different now. A new religion is, is one in which uh, you, you can live uh, however you feel like. And as long as you pay lip service to God, everything is okay, or whatever your God might be. And, and so philosophies of the world are choking out the truth. I, I remember years and years ago when my wife and I had recently graduated. We both graduated from Simpson College way, way back there before we went on to other schooling. And one of the young ladies who also graduated from Simpson College went on to State University. And after taking some courses at State University, she was so mixed up she didn't know what she believed anymore. I, I think she eventually got squared away, but you know, the, the philosophies of the world, if, if we don't view them through the eyes of Scripture, we can be confused by them because they argue that there's all this evidence over here, this evidence over there. How can such bad things happen to such good people? How can God allow these tragedies? And all kinds of questions can be posed which seem inanswerable, unanswerable. But, but we always have to view all of these philosophies through the eyes of Scripture because the, the root of all of the tragedy in the world is much more clearly seen and is, can only be clearly seen through the eyes of Scripture. And so the truth is often choked out by those who are not 
delving in and learning and, and allowing the scripture to become that fertile soil in their lives. So many churches today are preaching a kind of a marshmallow, seeker-sensitive gospel. Uh, a gospel that's changed so that it doesn't offend people who might be coming from a world that's called post-Christian or post-modern or post-whatever. People who, who, do, who do no longer believe in absolute truth. You probably, some of you, got copies of uh, Ravi Zacharias's uh, council uh, tapes in which uh, he talks in, in one of those, uh, in one of his, actually the third of his messages, he talks a lot about um, postmodernism and, and the fact that people today, many of them, do not believe that there is anything, not only no such thing as absolute truth, but that words have, we were just listening to this yesterday on the way back, that words have no meaning except the meaning given to them by the speaker. <laughs> no, I, I deal with it with my kids all the time. It's okay to say that because that's how we talk. Yeah. Like, no, that's still offensive and you're still going to go run some laps, you know. It's, it's like you can change all you want. It's, it still means the same thing. Yeah, yeah. And you know, if we get, if we get taken up by that, we, we can lose our foundation in the Lord because the foundation in the Lord is a belief in absolute truth. There is a truth, it's rock solid, it's central, and everything relates to it, no matter how many people try to deny its existence. I personally, even if I didn't believe in, in the scripture, the idea of, of living in a world where there are no foundations and no anchors and no reference points is, is to me, unthinkable. Inconsistent. Yeah, I mean, you know, inconsistent is like being in a little tiny boat out in a huge storm on the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, you know. You're just totally at the whim of the waves. I think many of the people who have been, quote, brought to Christ in some of these weak versions of the gospel are self-identified evangelicals, maybe members of a local church, but are not truly members of the bride of Christ, the church universal. And so I think we can explain much of the affliction, or at least a portion of the affliction of the church today by acknowledging that many of those who consider themselves as Christians and are living in open sin are in, in reality functional pagans. The rub comes when we look at David. David is no functional pagan. David is not one whose heart was hard and the word didn't take root or, or was rocky and it took root but died out quickly or, or the, where the word was choked out. He was one who, who's upon whom the word fell and it multiplied a hundredfold. He was one of, the, one of the great men of the Old Testament. In fact, he stands with Abraham and Moses as one of the greatest men of all of Old Testament history. So David poses a problem. Uh, we can't answer all of the trouble in the church today by saying, well, what you're really dealing with are people who just call themselves Christians. They act like Christians, but in reality, in their hearts, they're really pagans. It's possible for a true Christian, a true man or woman of God, to plummet as David plummeted into the pit. And this passage, therefore, of Scripture, chapters 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel, serve as a powerful warning to us. How did it happen? It happened because David let his guard down. He ignored the voice of the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit of God spoke to him in his heart, he ran past the warnings to chase after his 
desire of the moment. We must be constantly aware of the wiles of the devil and of the weaknesses of our flesh. He doesn't give up. Satan's always there. He's, he may go away for a moment in a particular area, but he's going to come back from a different angle at a different time. And, and our flesh is always weak. We always have to view our flesh as weak. We cannot stand in our flesh against the wiles of the devil. You just can't do it. I don't care if we're, you know, the rock. You know, isn't that the name of one of those wrestlers? <laughs> or the guy who's the uh, governor of Minnesota who says he doesn't need religion because he's strong. It doesn't matter how physically strong a person might be or how intellectually brilliant a, a person may be, none can stand against the wiles of the evil one because he was the greatest of all created beings, the most powerful, the most intelligent, the most beautiful of all created beings, and, and none of us could stand against him because we have built into us the weakness of the flesh anyway. Uh, it, it's natural for us to, to go after the desires of the world because that's part of our fallen nature. It, it's almost, it almost seems unfair that we, we try to deal with the world and the devil, but we've got the flesh that's allied with the world and the devil, in, and, and we're dwelling in it. And that's why we are so dependent day by day, moment by moment, on God's presence and power in our lives. We must have time in which we contemplate what God would do for us. We must have time in which we pray. Every day we need time of private prayer. I don't mean just listening to some prayer on the radio and agreeing to it. I mean where we personally pray to God and talk with Him and spend some time meditating on His Word because that's how He strengthens us and that's how He teaches us. I have known people, and you probably have too, who are afraid of quiet time. They're afraid to just sit down by themselves and have everything quiet around them. They've got to have the TV on, or the radio playing, or a CD incessantly playing, because they're afraid to face the reality of the vacuity of their soul. It's, you got to just have something all the time because if you sit down, you're liable to think. And that's scary for many. And to suddenly be aware of the fact that God, I mean, God, God can't get through a lot of the noise half the time. I, I've been to people's houses where the television is playing and nobody's even watching it. But it's there because it's sort of like company, I guess. Uh, going all the time, it's, it's just hammer, 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 you know, it's a, it's a terrible nuisance uh, if, if you're not specifically focusing on it. Even then it often is a nuisance. But the, the radio playing or the CD playing, you know, the people who walk around all the time with their boom boxes or whatever because they can't have a moment of quiet. God speaks in the still, small voice. Now he can speak with a hammer uh, too, as we're going to find out here in, in a minute. But generally, as, as Elijah discovered on the mountain, God usually speaks in a still, small voice. And David has been successful at keeping that still, small voice uh, muffled over this many months, maybe even as much time as a year. It's vital that you and I hear from the word of the Lord every week, not just on Sunday. It's got to be during the week as well to build ourselves up and to find the strength we need 
to live each day. And I, I think it's each equally vital for us to every day renew our desire and our, our invitation to the Holy Spirit to fill our lives. You know, I, you know we, we come from probably different evangelical traditions, and there are some evangelical traditions where they believe in, a, in, in, in sanctification coming in a mighty experience at one time in which the Holy Spirit fills the life and everything. But if you read through the scripture, you, you'll discover that we need to keep renewing that. You know, keep renewing our invitation to the Holy Spirit to fill our lives and, and to take control of us because uh, we don't know what this day is going to hold for us as we go forth in it. And if we haven't invited the Spirit to take control of our lives and, and to guide us through the course of the day, we can end up really making a mess out of things and not really hearing his voice because there's so much clamor in the world, I'm sure you've noticed, all the time. And of course, he's the only one that can make the truth real to us. He's the only one that can interpret this word to our hearts so that we understand what it really means. You know, the scripture says that the word of God is of no private interpretation, meaning that no single individual or single church or single organization can tell us what the meaning is. It's got to be through the Holy Spirit because that is the right interpretation, is the interpretation of the Holy Spirit to our hearts. And the Bible becomes the foundation stone upon which our thoughts and our attitudes and our actions take place. Most of us are familiar with Proverbs 4.23 where we read, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Who we are flows out of our heart. And what our heart is, is dependent upon the degree to which we've allowed the Spirit of God to interpret the Word of God to us. If we diligently fill our hearts with God's truth and we guard our hearts then against the world, the flesh, and the devil, we're going to discover that good rather than evil will characterize our lives. One, one of the prayers that Lois and I have been practicing more lately is that we're about to embark on something. We pray that, Lord, make us a blessing and not a curse in this situation. Because we can actually become a curse in a situation if we're not listening to God and we just blunder on into something. Because if we react out of the flesh, which is easy to do, all you have to do is drive down the road and have somebody ride on your rear bumper. I don't know you, about you, but I've been tempted <laughs> more than once to hit the brakes, and I've done it. <laughs> that is not a blessing. Maybe what the guy deserves, but it's not a blessing. <laughs> Because David had quenched the still, small voice of the Lord in his heart, God had to use the two-by-four approach, and he will. If we won't listen to the still, small voice, he'll use the two-by-four. He sent, and you notice what the, what the passage says in, in the first verse of chapter 12, the Lord sent Nathan. This wasn't Nathan's idea. Nathan didn't think, David is acting like a jerk. I'm going to go get him. The Lord sent Nathan. The Lord put it in Nathan's heart as the prophet of God to go and be the voice of God to David. Now, now Nathan's, we read this and we think, well, Nathan went there as a fiery Moses and, and uh, before Pharaoh and everything. But just like Moses before Pharaoh, Moses was at risk of losing his life before Pharaoh. So was Nathan. Nathan was David's 
chaplain, his spiritual advisor, which he hadn't been listening to lately, of course. And, and he was authorized to boldly proclaim what? The word of the Lord. And I think that's the key here. He wasn't told to go just say whatever comes off the top of your head, Nathan. Go cuss him up one side and down the other side, Nathan. He was to go proclaim the word of the Lord in order to break through the shell of rationalization that David had built around his heart. As the days and the weeks and the months went by, the shell kept getting thicker and thicker that David had built around his heart, rationalizing what he had done. The parable that Nathan told was well suited to hammer through this, this armor of self-justification that David was establishing to fortify his conscience against the voice of God. Now, of course, Nathan didn't say, oh, David, I want to tell you this parable. Nathan came before David and told him this account. And it was like it was an account. I'm telling you, he didn't say to David, I'm telling you what's happening out there. He, he, didn't, he didn't say what it was. He just started telling this story. And he allowed David to assume that he was reporting on somebody out there who was a bad dude. He didn't tell him that this was a parable. Now, to anyone with any sense of fairness, uh, any sense of justice, when you read through this parable, you think, this is unthinkable. This guy has, this rich man has huge herds, and he's got this poor little neighbor who has his pet lamb, and he takes his neighbor's pet lamb? I have a hard time thinking of, well, I suppose there are people around who might do that. In effect, they do, I suppose, when they tromp off with all the money and allow the stocks to go to zero on, on some big corporate. It's the same thing, I guess. It just isn't quite so blatant or obvious, I, I, I suppose I should say. But this, the, the, the evil, the gross injustice of this situation was, was very, very obvious. And David's reaction to this story that Nathan told him uh, although he had been rejecting all influences that might in any way convict him of sin, deep down, David still had a sense of godly justice. And, and I think this is the core. At the heart of David was belief in God. In his very core, he had not rejected God's truth. And out of his mouth he condemns himself because he is the rich man. Not only was the king and was he very rich, but he already had a bunch of wives and concubines on top of it all. And Uriah had the one wife. And he steals Uriah's wife and then kills Uriah. He proclaimed that the perpetrator of the injustice in this parable, which he thought was an, a, an account of somebody out there, deserved to die. Ooh. Notice his righteous indignation. He says, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die, and he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. Now, he, he says deserves to die. Whether he actually would have carried out a sentence of execution or not, it's another thing. If he did, you'd, you'd hope he would make the guy repay fourfold before he executed him. That would probably be the proper order. According to Exodus chapter 22, verse 1, if a man steals a sheep and kills it or sells it, he must repay the owner fourfold. 
That's the law in Exodus. You must give four back if you steal and destroy a lamb, a sheep, and it would apply to, of course, anything of that nature. You must repay it fourfold. But what you will discover is there is no sentence of execution for theft giving in the law. No sentence for execution for theft. David, why, why does David come up with this, this? He says, a man deserves to die. Why does he say that? Because of the callousness of this man. He says his lack of compassion. Oh, stinger. Lack of compassion. Who had a lack of compassion? Because the lamb was like a daughter, the passage says. The lamb was like a daughter to the man. Well, who was Bathsheba? The beloved wife of Uriah. Unwittingly, David had condemned himself out of his own mouth. Since he had not simply stolen a little lamb, he had committed adultery, punishable in the Old Testament by stoning, and he had committed murder likewise. Double cause for death. Whereas in the parable, the guy had simply stolen, not simply, but he had taken this little ewe lamb and, and fed his guest with it. As we will see, however, God will allow another life to substitute for David's life here. And again, this is another foreshadowing of Messiah. So many messianic shadows or foreshadowing in the life of David, sometimes David being that Messiah-like person and sometimes others in the life of David. Reading on at verse 7. 2 Samuel 12, 7. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added you to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them, give them to your companion. And he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. I think people today who believe in a kind of a namby-pamby God who just says, Oh, poor people down there. They don't really know what they're doing. I guess I better not punish them. They need to read a passage like this to know that, no, God doesn't sit up there like a cross Prussian uncle looking for everybody he can knock around. But God does not tolerate injustice. God does not uh, tolerate unrighteousness. He will deal with it. 
Nathan plays his role very straight here. He, he gives David no hint as to his real purpose here. He doesn't walk up to David and give him the evil eye, you know, as if he's about ready to smack him one. He, he just innocently walks up before David and tells him this story, this account. And as a result, David could not have been more off guard or unexpecting, unsuspecting of the trap that was about to be sprung. I mean, he was totally without defense. When David indignantly condemned the rich man in the parable for his despicable greed and his lack of compassion, he left himself without excuse when Nathan then stood and looked him in the eye and said, you are that man. Can you, just, can you just visualize the drama of that moment? When you could have heard a pin drop in the royal palace. David was thunderstruck, absolutely speechless, because Nathan followed up the initial blitz with a total indictment from the Lord himself. He didn't give David a chance to respond or, or to, to begin to rationalize or get, make excuses for himself. David, or Nathan hammered home the message. And what is interesting is he didn't s proclaim this under the authority of Nathan the prophet. He proclaimed it under the authority of the Lord because he says, Thus saith Yahweh the Elohim of Israel. And then he gave the message. The message came from on high to David. So what answer did David have? What answer could David have? And, and then the Lord, through Nathan, rehearsed all that God had done. I anointed you king over Israel, David. I saved you from Saul, David. And I gave you all of Saul's property and, and his wives. Now, exactly what that means, we don't know. It may be a, an, a euphemism for uh, taking over Saul's position, because nowhere in the scripture does it say that David acquired uh, Saul's wives, it, it could simply mean that they came under his care and therefore he had to watch out for them and make sure they were cared for. It's possible some of them might have become his concubines. He did have about 10 concubines, but uh, there, there's no implication that that's even so. But, but nevertheless, the meaning is that all that Saul had, had, became David's. And then fourthly, I gave you rule over Israel and Judah. And then he said, finally, if that had not been enough, I would have given you whatever else you needed. God made it quite clear that David was who he was by the power of God alone. By God's power only. Was he the sweet singer of Israel? Was he the psalmist of Israel? Was he the uh, man who triumphed over Saul? Was he the king of Israel? Was he the victorious builder of an empire? He was all of that by God's power alone, not by any other source or through any other source. And what that did, of course, was destroy any possibility that David had for defense, excuse for what he had done. One of the things you discover about God is he pulls no punches. God always strikes right to the heart of the issue. God always calls sin, sin. David was guilty of heinous sin, not just I don't want to say just, but it wasn't the taking of a ewe lamb, literally, from somebody and sacrificing, I mean, giving it to somebody else. It was murder and adultery. He couldn't excuse his sin by, by saying, oh, it's a disease. I have this disease, you know, I have this lust disease. I have 
emotional stress, and, and this is the way I relieve my emotional stress. Uh, it's the prerogative of a king. Now, he was using that as an excuse, but it was no excuse. Or he could have said, uh, but, but you know, it's a legitimate alternate, alternative lifestyle, as some people are saying today, you know. God's Word, as, as you read it there in verse 9, pinned David to the wall. <laughs> Saul had failed twice to pin David to the wall with his spear. But David very, I mean God, very purposely pinned David to the wall in verse 9. You have struck down Uriah with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife. Why? And, and then God explains exactly what has happened. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? And that takes it to the root. That takes us, takes us to the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem isn't simply that we have this, this sin disease, uh, that we have a weak flesh. The root of the problem is the despising of the word of the Lord. Let, let me read from Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Again, a, a passage of scripture that we often turn to. Hebrews 4, 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge <clears throat> the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Scripture tells us that men love darkness rather than light because in darkness they can do all kinds of evil and hope they're not seen, not realizing, of course, that the all-seeing eyes of God know every sin. David, the man through whom God wrote numerous of the Psalms which we find in the heart of our Bible, uh, Psalms which we so often turn to for encouragement, to express our joy, or to lift us up in hours of sorrow or sadness, the, the man whom God used to do that is accused by God of despising the word of the Lord. Despising the word of the Lord. I mean, the word despise is a pretty bad, harsh word. If you despise something, it means you, you hate it with a passion. And what that meant, of course, was how, how had David despised the word of the Lord? by violating the word of the Lord, intentionally knowing all of the consequences that would result. As Christians, when we sin, we are violating the word of God. And the longer we persist in the state of sin, as David did, again, he persisted in that for, as I've given an estimate, at least a year, let's say. It may have been 10 months, 12 months. We, we don't know exactly. But from, the, from before Bathsheba was pregnant until after the baby was born, David persisted in denying all sin and rejecting the still small voice of the Spirit of God. And so the longer we persist in a state of sin, rejecting uh, the voice of, of God, rejecting the word of God, which specifically says this is sin. Oh, no, it's not really sin. It's okay for me to live my, with my girlfriend without marriage because I really love her. That's what the Bible says. 
or, or uh, many other things that I could use here that, that are being practiced within many of the churches of America and are, are not being, a, you know, disciplined. The longer that occurs without being remedied, the more intentional is the thumbing of the nose to God and to His Word. Let me read from Numbers chapter 15. In Numbers 15, verse 27, you know, the Old Testament deals with these problems as well as the New. In Numbers 15, 27, if one person sins unintentionally, then he shall offer a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the sons of Israel and for the alien who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is native or alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment that the, that person may, shall be completely cut off and his guilt shall be upon him. David clearly fits in that category because Nathan accused him of blasphemy, causing blasphemy of the word of the Lord and despising of the word of the Lord. So David fit into this intentional sin category. An unintentional sin doesn't simply mean that you accidentally sinned one day and didn't know, you, know you'd done it. it. It means that you hadn't planned it. It wasn't something you were lurking to do. You know, it, it, you yielded to your lust in a moment. Uh, you blew your top in a situation or you, whatever, you can plug in whatever there but immediately felt, or soon after there, you felt guilty and, and you went to the Lord. That's what that is referring to. But when you harbor it, you rationalize it, you cover it, you declare it not to be sin, you do what so many people are doing today. They reinterpret the Bible to, to make, for example, homosexuality is not a sin, you know. I mean, it doesn't really say that in here when it's just as clear as a bell. I mean, that is what is being referred to. That is intentionally pushing on with one's lifestyle because one has decided he or she is the arbiter of truth rather than the Word of God. The Word of God has got to be the arbiter of truth because it is the truth. Wanted to talk a little bit more about how David fit uh, in, into this exactly here and how it applies as well. And then how God deals with David's twofold sin with a twofold chastisement. And that's explained for us there also in, uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 12.